1: Broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles, California. And this is the place where entertainment and technology intersect. Wells Fargo's made it official. Big banks are getting in on cryptocurrency. We all knew they would. Wells Fargo's launching a US dollar-linked stablecoin, making it the latest financial titan to get into crypto. Wells Fargo's proprietary digital ledger technology, Digital Cash, now there's an original name, will allow users to move money internally across the firm's global network in near real time. So you can send it from here. It'll be anywhere on the planet in about a second. So no more excuses to hang on to your money for a week. JP Morgan's JPM coin, based on blockchain, is intended to make instantaneous payments using blockchain technology. Now, you might recall JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon. Remember when he said, Bitcoin is a fraud. It's a con. Well, he later regretted those comments, and now he's in it himself. Each JPM coin has a value equivalent to one US dollar, and digital currencies tied to fiat currencies have come to be known as stable coins. Not that there's anything necessarily stable about the US dollar, but so when one client sends money to another over the blockchain, JPM coins are transferred and instantly redeemed for the equivalent amount of US dollars. And this, is, this reduces the normal settlement time to pretty much instantaneous. And the bank said that over time, JPM coins will be extended from just the US currency to other major currencies. Now, JP Morgan, despite Jamie Dimon's protestations, has long shown interest in the potential of blockchain. In 2015, it joined four years ago, before Dimon went out and made an idiot of himself, they joined a consortium of banks led by New York-based fintech R3, looking to create standards and protocols over how blockchain could be used in banking. It's likely that all other banks will follow suit with tokens and networks of their own. So why are the major banks going crypto? The unregulated nature of cryptocurrency networks created concerns that it would enable tax evasion, money laundering, and other dark net activities. But banks have discovered that blockchain-based technologies allow instantaneous payment transfers. And in an increasingly global economy, this is especially attractive because businesses can move funds outside of normal operating hours and cutting costs and making it faster. And besides that, if the big banks didn't do it, The fintech banks would kill them. They're going to kill them anyway. It'll just going to take longer. So, when Bitcoin began in 2009, every major investment bank said it was a con and not to invest in it. Today, big banks all over the world are all over cryptocurrency and blockchain. Steve Chavaron, who's the portfolio manager at Federated Investors has declared that blockchain will lead the way and will create the fourth industrial revolution. Now, that's a pretty big rap. Major corporations overseas have begun securing their company and their assets using blockchain. Even governments, for example, Mexico, have begun using blockchain as a way to decrease corruption and make monetary transfers safer. Bank of America possesses the most patents in the blockchain space. Citigroup launched a number of overwhelmingly positive trials to see how efficiently the technology cracks down on credit defaults. In the international banking sector, many banks have invested heavily in the technology and for most part... They've skipped the obstacles that the United States has imposed on cryptocurrency and blockchain. The restrictions in this country, in the United States, are ridiculous and really putting us behind the rest of the world. The Bank of England has been one of the most important players in embracing the power that the technology of blockchain has to offer. Hong Kong and UK-based HSBC and Germany's Deutsche Bank made an important deal with technology giant IBM last year. Switzerland has many important banks investing in crypto and blockchain. UBS has a key component in introducing blockchain and cryptocurrency to other major banks and foreign conglomerates. And the huge Spanish banking giant BBVA made a considerable investment in the cryptocurrency trading platform. Black Blockchain and cryptocurrency have arrived. I've been telling you that for five years. If you had to listen to me, you'd be rich. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? Well, you should because we've now got about 1.75 million daily subscribers. It takes about 30 seconds, 60 seconds, up to 90 seconds to read each day, and it will keep you up to date with everything from meta- new trends in medicine to new apps to new technologies to things like Hyperloop and autonomous cars and blockchain and cryptocurrency. And tomorrow's newsletter is all about the race for artificial intelligence. And since 2010, there have been 635 AI acquisitions. And as you imagine, it's all the big guys. It's the Apples and the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons of this world that are leading the charge. So the one thing you can trust for up-to-date news is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And to get it, all you've got to do, and people do this every day of the week, is just go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. Takes you two seconds. And it's easy and you'll start getting it within a couple of days. And if you don't want it, you just click on unsubscribe and you're instantly gone. You know how some newsletters you can't get rid of no matter what you do? Well, this ain't one of them. Now with e-commerce beginning a lucrative shop <laughs> becoming a very lucrative shopping channel, retailers and their logistics partners have been primarily focused on how to quickly move goods through the supply chain and into the hands of consumers, and this is a process commonly referred to as forward logistics. However, the opportunities presented by the growing popularity of e-commerce also come with a challenging multi-billion dollar downside, the rapidly increasing number of returns. Return rates for e-commerce purchases are between 25% and 30%, compared to just 9% for in-store purchases. Now, turning reverse logistics, the process of returning good for end users back to their origins, is a very costly and high-stakes matter for retailers. Not only are retailers experiencing more returns as a result of e-commerce growth, but consumer expectations also demand that retailers provide a seamless and fast process. In fact, 92% of consumers agree that they're more likely to shop at a store again if it offers a hassle-free return policy. Some consumers even place large orders with the intention of returning certain items. And e-commerce sales are only going to continue to increase. This is exacerbating the issue and making retailers' need for help much more dire. But if you happen to be a logistics firm that can offer cost-effective reverse logistics solutions, this has opened up a significant opportunity. The logistics, reverse logistics market in the United States last year was $117 billion. That's $117 billion worth of returns and nearly three times more people Return stuff, 9% of people, that's the growth, and 30% is the growth in returns. So one one can only wonder where that's going to finish. So reverse logistics, they're much more challenging than forward logistics, and consumer trends have driven retailers to finally improve the way in which returns move through their supply chains and how logistics firms can act to win over retailers' return dollars. E-commerce is now a core shopping channel for retailers and it's still growing. So, U.S. e-commerce sales are set to increase at a compound growth rate of 14% and returns will grow at somewhere between 20 and 30%. That'll be over $300 million a year Now consumers have high expectations about how returns are handled and you've got to find a cost-effective solution and 64% of shoppers stated they would be hesitant to shop at a retailer ever again if they found issues with the return process and retailers don't have the expertise to effectively keep up with how demanding consumers are about returns And 44% of retailers say their margins are negatively impacted by handling and packaging returns. So it's not pretty. Logistics firms are well positioned to solve and profit from product returns. These companies can take advantage of their scale and expertise to solve main pain points for retailers as goods move through the reverse supply chain. Reverse logistics solutions themselves produce a lucrative opportunity, but they're also appealing in the potential inroads they offer to supply chain management. And the global third-party logistics market is estimated to be valued at $865 billion globally. That's a lot of hay. Now, Philip Kotler, We've all heard of Philip Kotler. um, He's called the father of modern marketing. For over 30 years, he's been the international marketing chair at Northwestern University, one of the main business study centers in the world. He's a hell of a good guy. For a guy who's so smart and got accolades miles long, he's a really good guy. He's written more than 70 marketing books. Seventy? I've written five, and I found that to be a pain in the ass, 70. And I'm very privileged to have Philip join me on the program this evening. So this is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with my guest, the sensational Philip Kotler, in just a moment.
0: Your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, Advertising, performance measurement, or some other area. Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at BobPritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to this Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where over the past nine years now, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people and their interesting and exciting new initiatives. You know, we talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects about the services they provide. We We touch on the challenges that they face and work out how they overcame them. And I guess underneath it all, what we try to do is work out what it is that makes them tick, what makes these successful entrepreneurs unique. I got a, some details from um, Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago that said that the failure rate among startups now is somewhere around 98.5%. So why do only 1.5% of entrepreneurs succeed? And what do they do that makes them special? Well, Philip Kotler is called the father of modern marketing. He's a marketing, writing, mathematics and economics specialist. And since 1988, over 30 years, he's been the international marketing chair at Northwestern University, which is one of the main business study centers in the world. This is the part that really gets me about Philip. He's written more than 70 books marketing books now i wrote five and that was a pain in the ass and they were hard work but philip's written 70 which <laughs> makes me feel embarrassed so i'm very privileged to have philip join me on the program hi philip welcome to the bob pritchard radio show on voice america business network you're being heard heard right around
2: the world Thank you, Bob, uh, and I'm a, a devoted reader of your columns and learn a lot from them, so mm-hmm. nice to to talk to you. Uh, by the way, in writing 70 books, uh, I'm not a masochist, I want to <laughs> explain that. I just enjoy thinking, and that's how I do my thinking. Uh, you had asked, uh, uh, or were going to ask about uh, being called the father of modern marketing. Yeah. Uh, I did not invent the term. As a matter of fact, if it had said father of marketing, it would be so wrong, because marketing discipline... Well, uh, I
1: would have objected for a a start.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to make that distinction, because marketing is much older than I am. Uh, Not that old, but 120 years, uh, the first textbooks came out uh, on marketing in the title. And by the way, there were markets all over the world forever, so it's not that the word market was new, but marketing, working with the market, became new in the 1900s, early 1900s. The reason for the term modern marketing is in 1967, I wrote my book called Marketing Management, and that's now in 15 editions every three or more years. and, And it just traveled around the world as the most used for training marketing managers. And uh, therefore, I, I think the term uh, started uh, father of mo- modern marketing. Do
1: you know who it was that first gave you that moniker?
2: Uh, you, you may know. I, I, I'm trying to remember. So I was told once who it was.
1: Right, okay.
2: So, uh, But uh, but I'll, I'll figure that one out. I should thank the person anyways. Uh, yeah, you should. It really...
1: Been. Yeah, it really stuck, and it's it's it sort of puts you on a pedestal, doesn't
2: it? Uh, and a responsibility, sure. Yeah, but sure. Uh, but my it was that book and another book called Principles of Marketing, which was more for not only people who want to be in the marketing role in the company, but Principles is for everyone to get some sense that so much is marketing around the world. You can market. Goods, services, people, places, ideas. So uh, that was one of my big points: that marketing is not limited to things that um, are priced necessarily. No, that's true. As a matter of fact, one of my one of my things was called social marketing, uh, which is all about how we can help people change certain bad habits, for example, like smoking. I think what got me into thinking about applying marketing is how do you help a smoker get off of it, often when he wants to get off, he or she wants to get off of it. Well, that's gone into so many directions now. It, how do we stop bullying in schools? Yeah. How, how do we get, uh, get make sure people don't get burned in Florida because they saw some sun and they lied down for two hours, and now they're just scalded. Yeah, social marketing is is one of the things that uh, uh, has come out of this,
1: and it's more and more important every day. Um, you know, like v- vaping, the number of people oh vape that's
2: is uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I know of two people who are social marketers who are trying to set up experiments to see what works in dissuading someone from continuing with that thing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that with smoking um, particularly, well, in California anyway, the the only thing that seems to work is, and this is a terrible thing to say but it's um, is shaming people. You know, they Uh, And I've had experience with people in my own life that I've, um, after I've spoken to them, have stopped smoking. Um, And uh, the the commercials that have got the people with the holes in their neck and speaking through machines, and that doesn't seem to deter people because I think people can easily sit there and say, well, that's not going to happen to me but um, they ran campaign it yeah,
2: doesn't work on everyone it no. doesn't work about the cancer and all that, that and heart disease yeah, but you know the shaming takes place uh, because they have to stand outside of their outside of the building yeah. smoking
1: but what, what, it, what seems to have worked is the you know you're never going to get a boyfriend because you stink and
2: that is correct that, that really works Absolutely. We, well, but every group has its uh, reason for, it. you know, like what if 13 year old girls turn to smoking. I mean, let's have a message to, that understands why she gets status doing that in her group. And therefore, what is the content we deliver as messaging that gets her to think twice about it? You know, and so it, it differs from group to group, yeah, a, a mass right. market, a mass marketing message is like mass marketing it's loses most of the people who receive
1: it, yeah, I was interested to read that the Democratic Party has divided um the democratic voter in the United States into something like six and a half thousand categories, and I see they fire off the emails and as an election's approaching, they fire off different emails to six and a half thousand different segments of the market and you sit there and think gee that is really targeting
2: it doesn't seem to work
1: <laughs> but it's well, really well, targeting that's
2: what the Procter & Gamble found out when it uh, got into um, what we call social media marketing yeah. and digital marketing they uh, were spending about 35% of their budget on the, uh, of their advertising budget in the new media And now it's down to maybe 20%. They overshot, but they had to because they didn't know how good um, Google works or Facebook or Instagram. Um, I'm in favor of it. It's the new marketing. I, I talk about the difference between modern marketing and the new marketing, which is digital marketing.
1: Yeah. And, the, you know, it's interesting because from my perspective, and I may well be wrong, but the same principles, you know, the same principles that applied 50 years ago apply now. Just the delivery mechanisms are different. The channels are different. Do you agree with that?
2: that that's right. Uh, uh, the, what the major tenants remain uh, are, first, uh, the customer's uh, central to your yeah. planning, you exist for the customer, but we're adding for also for the employees if you're not going to make it in the service business if you have unhappy employees trying and you're trying to satisfy your customers so and then we really are beginning to say there's more stakeholders than customers and employees there's the distributors and there's suppliers and there's the community so the shift is from uh, from just making it about customer if you're going to work well with the customer you better work with all the stakeholders and make sure they're all rewarded for their efforts, not just the shareholders.
1: Yeah, I think too many people don't realize that every person that works in their company and every person that represents their company is their best advertising tool. It's their best marketing tool out in the out yep. in the community, and uh, most people don't probably don't think about that.
2: Well, this is why a company should be run as a family in a sense that they are all working together and all sharing the good, the good results.
1: Families work um,
2: together and share good results?
1: <laughs> well, <What else? laughs> I'm not sure there seems to be a bloody lot of dysfunctional families around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. um,
2: anyways, uh, I mentioned social marketing. You know, yeah. there's a couple of other concepts that I developed Um That are related. For example, demarketing was an inspiration we had when we realized that uh, there's going to be a water shortage. Yeah, Um, we 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 should be more careful in using our resources. Um, And 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 demarketing programs are very straightforward. They take the four P's: product, price, place, and promotion, and just reverse them right so instead of uh selling a uh, something at a certain price you raise the price more so there'd be less use of careless use of water or air or whatever Does and, that- uh, the same with uh, you make the you define the product to be different uh, uh and the promotion has changed i think we're going to be in the next several years, into a world of demarketing.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because price with water, price doesn't seem to have an effect. Everybody that you part, I'm in California, of course, which is sort of pose essential.
2: Oh, you know the problem.
1: But everybody walks around with with bottled water that they've paid you know three dollars fifty for, and it's no better than the water that comes out of the tap. So. i I can't quite work out how that works
2: well um we uh, uh, have to get more people to be less careless about water waste uh and so on Uh, there's another concept i worked out called atmospherics uh, which has to do with um, uh, when you when there's a retailing situation you know you go into a retailer and you Get pretty bored by the show of their the clothes or whatever. Yeah, how do you create uh, a feeling, an experience yeah. out of something that would have been just boring experience? You've got a, uh, a Thought so is a good start. The, in <laughs> other words, your you, sales should be accompanied by atmospheric uh, and experiential uh, yeah, things that. Uh, surround the, the things, but we, you know, these, Walmart, these these shopping malls, oh, excuse me one second. Sure. Um, these uh, shopping malls are closing down. And uh, I heard an interesting thing that uh, the reason, uh, the only things that will work in a shopping mall is, are uh, buying and selling services that you can't buy from Amazon right if you can buy anything from Amazon in fact it doesn't need to be in the shopping mall but but experiences like medical service uh, like uh, some educational functions uh, and so on so experiential marketing is not going to be uh, caught up to too much as uh, goods uh, that are sold by Amazon
1: although and, there's uh, there are people like um, Bass Pro Shops for example where You know, it's just another store selling sporting goods, but you can actually fish in their little lake and you can ride your bike on their indoor um, bike track. And you can, you know, so it becomes a real experience when you go there and they're doing well and their shops are big and doing well. I think people will... I think people, you know, my philosophy is that people like going to the mall, people like going to the supermarket, they like the interaction with people, but they need to be entertained, they need to have an experience, they need to walk out of there saying, wow, that was great, I really enjoyed that, and I think if you do that, you can keep people at retail.
2: Absolutely, I think any service uh, business can be distinguished and differentiated uh uh, by just thinking about the thousands of ways you to make something interesting. Yeah. Um, so we were asking people to be more creative as retailers, manufacturers, and so on. So,
1: marketing 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and 4.0, what are you talking about there? I,
2: yeah, what happened is, we actually, uh, the first three we're in one of my books called Marketing 3.0, right. but of course uh, I got to justify calling something that, and so I had to explain why there was a 1.0 and a 2.0, though there were no specific books on those. 1.0 is when how marketing started and sales started, just to say yeah, I've got a better product than the next guy. Yeah, um, that, that kind of thing is fine to say, uh, my price is lower, whatever, but doesn't. Uh, make you very different than the others. So, uh, going up to 2.0, uh, that's when you start realizing that most buying is not rational. It's uh, impregnated with emotional feelings about uh, uh, Am I should I buy this? Uh, what have I got to gain? What have I got to lose? There's a lot of emotion and that's 2.0. Then we made the case that enlightened uh, marketers should think of 3.0, namely, uh, get a, show, show caring and compassion for your customers. Don't just sell something and, uh, on either a rational or emotional basis, but show your values. Show that you're a company that we, you, you want to do business with because of what they care about. It's sort of like adopt the cause. Uh, besides you selling uh, toothpaste, uh, you've done a lot of work to make our, pe- our teeth better, uh, more than that, uh, even and so on. 4.0 came up more recently uh, as a separate book where we realized that we're in a digital marketing uh, world and we wanted to bring a lot of the new, you, how do you use Facebook? and other social media, uh, which, will give, which will give you much more information about specific uh, market segments, specific people as a matter of fact, how do you use all this data that's now available to you to really almost make the right message for the right person sent at the right time to the right place, how do you get, how, wouldn't that be better than just mass marketing.
1: Yeah, are those. do you think those um, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 and 4.0 are more about um, delivery channels than they are about about marketing, really? I mean, 1.0, I can imagine, was back when newspapers began to get... Um, widely read and radio started then i imagine that 2.0 when television came in and all of a sudden things had life and 3.0 i'm not so sure about (laughs) but 4.0 again is where the the communication vehicle totally changed so i've always i've always believed rightly or wrongly that every decision that everybody makes irrespective of what it is or how painful it is or how happy it is is an emotional decision. I don't care whether you're buying a packet yeah. of cornflakes yeah. or what you're doing, or buying a casket for somebody. It's an emotional decision. Um, and the, the different media vehicles require a different m- emotional approach.
2: So, am I off, off yes. the mark there, or? No, uh, I agree, but what we noticed in 4.0 is, first, consumers have changed. Yep. They know so much more, uh, and they are connect. They are connected with so many more people, and influencing. And many consumers are themselves messengers and network people, and so on. Absolutely, technology has changed. Channels of distribution have changed. We now sell a lot of food in the gas stations. Yep. Uh, and when you take all of these uh, changes, we gotta think freshly about what is going to be good marketing.
1: I think also the big change over the last, say, 10 years is that um, the Generation X's, Y's and Z's um, are much more environmentally conscious, they're much more worried about the future of the world and they really want to do business with um, companies that or organisations that share their values. And that's much more important exactly. than price or anything else, really.
2: And and we're making a big case with companies to please uh, make clear what you care about, what your purpose is as a company, your values, um, and uh, don't just make it uh, turn it into talk. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 there, we, there's a thing marketers are calling storytelling, but there's a, a distinction I make between storytelling and story-making. Yeah. You're a storyteller if you say you care about this, that, and the other thing. If you're actually showing the care by explicit things you're making better, then that's story-making. Yes. And we are asking companies to think of that.
1: Yeah, that's that. I think that's really important. Any, any company that doesn't have a social conscience and that isn't um, Doing some some good as, as well as um, making a profit is doomed to fail.
2: You know, uh, the real problem comes about how the way I ended up writing a book on capitalism democracy. Uh, yeah, it's about to the ask. The thing you about is that, that uh, if our our government used to be working, uh, and yeah. we would count on government as we did in the thirties. To, to handle problems of uh, insufficient uh, employment and uh, poor infrastructure and people suffering and all that uh, well um, the point is that government is not is, is locked in it's it's divided and uh, paralyzed yes. so the question is who should do something well the first answer is not the nonprofit organizations why didn't we ever invent nonprofits? Uh, like the Red Cross and uh, this environmental group and another thing. Well, we um, they do a lot of good. That's one of the reasons for nonprofits. But th- what we need is the biggest sector, the business sector, to start saying they should want a better society. Yeah, it will make them better off too. So. The question is, um, when I wrote Confronting Capitalism uh, and found 14 different things that need to be improved, so it is good capitalism, uh, the fact is that um, it still left us with 15% people in poverty. Uh, It still left us with uh, uh, very poor public schools, especially uh, in the poor neighborhoods, Yep. And one can go on and on and say that capitalism isn't working, and it led me to say we have to move more toward Nordic capitalism, the, the, what yes, you find sure. in Sweden, Norway, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and look, uh, just uh, one of the big failures is uh, that most of our millennials went to college, and they have such debt, they have to live with their parents, and they can't buy furniture, and they can't get married. Yeah, So we've got to face that. That. Sure. It's a job for business firms to think of these problems. And then the democracy has a problem because we, um, everything is being run by pharmaceutical firms through their lobbying and insurance companies for their good and they're getting richer, but it's not working well for us. For example, one of the statistics is that 80 or 90% of us want more control over guns Yes, by uh, background checks and maybe no war, war guns. Yeah, and ninety with such a high percent to favor um, some control, uh, our congresspeople don't, don't listen to us.
1: No, that's right. right? So can I, can I ask you a question? Just go back a step, and um, you're a, the marketing guru. How did you step out of marketing into? Confronting capitalism, decline on democracy, more um, those that. How did you get into that vein?
2: Uh, well, I, I felt that uh, marketers themselves uh, were taking too narrow a view of what is involved in in, in making change. Uh, for example, uh, let's say that we want uh, kids at schools to eat better food. Mm-hmm. instead of popping for the Coke and for the hamburger and so on. Uh, so uh, offhand, you could try to just work on the kids and say, to eat better food, but then not, uh, this won't happen if if the line of food in the cafeteria puts the Coke right there first and the hamburger second and all the, goods, all the vegetables way behind. So very often, there are marketing situations that are affected by the... A larger capitalistic structure of the economy so that got me into it and the second thing that got me into that that concern is I've always been wondering about how to serve the common good how, how to make better lives more people better served uh, by the way, the common good was a concept back with Jeremy Bentham in the 1780s sure. or something. Yep. But basically, saying let's endorse the proposal when there's several proposals. Let's favor the one that leads to the greatest good for the greatest number. That's all we're talking about. Right. Just always think which one will make more people happier. Um, so that took me into capitalism and democracy, and that's my re- most recent book called Advancing the Common Good. Yeah. so It's coming out September 30th uh, okay. this year. Good. The
1: I did a, I did a newsletter just recently, you, you may have read, where I said that I think days of governments are um, going to dwindle and we are going to be run by corporations, corporations now are so big, so powerful, so rich, they've got more power um, and some of them arguably more money than most governments on the planet. So, and I think that unless corporations do do something about change and looking after the community, we're going to have a, a rebellion from the have nots, which is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger slice of the market, um,
2: and so I do think see, we're maybe going. Maybe unions will. Maybe unions will come back. You saw what's happening with General Motors on strike. Right? Yeah. It, see, the the unions kept some. They were a counter force to the corporations. They gave us the, our health system and a bunch of other goodies. And I agree. Then they were, of course, killed or or as uh, so we we. Had laws passed that diminished their power and their level, uh, so I think uh, that we've got to uh, make a lot of changes. Even the corporations should be more. Re- Do you know in Germany, of course, forty uh, percent of the board of uh, directors are represent the union theory. Uh, yes, union view. We don't. Want, <laughs> we have no union voice. We have no consumer voice. We don't have any environmental voice running our companies.
1: No, and we certainly don't have any environmental in, ad, um, advice in governments either. There's no environmental voice, certainly in this government. Um, so what do you cover in advancing the common good? You know, who, who, who's going to read this? And, um, That's a good question. What are they going to draw from it?
2: I, I list uh, the following, um, read this book if uh, you, are a ca- you are a voter in local and national elections and, and face the question, what position will yield the greatest good for the greatest number? Right. Um, if you're a person supporting many causes, read this book. If you're a company that must decide on the course of action that would produce the most common good, read this book. If you're a government agency affecting people, uh, consider the common good. If you're a nonprofit, if you're a reformer uh, seeking to improve your community, uh, read this book. Uh, if you have activist friends and acquaintances, uh, read this book. So this is for people who want to get more activistic. They want to be more active for the social good, the public good.
1: Okay, how do we get, you know, I think the One of the biggest problems in the United States is that um, people don't vote. Um, I think if you look back over the last half a dozen elections, had we had 90% vote, um, then the results of every one of those elections would have been quite different. So how do we get people out to vote? What, what are we going to do?
2: Well, you know what Australia did? I, they they yeah. put a fine on non-voters. Yeah, I'm in favor of that. Uh, look, it's a marketing failure that we haven't been able to market the value people should expect from voting. I, I hope that could change just through good, strong marketing, but it's not enough maybe. We may have to penalize Non voters. I
1: think you know, I haven't, you know, I've, I've lived here for 32 years, so I'm a bit out of touch with Australia, although my accent still sounds like I'm Australian. But um, there is a fine, but I think that just encourages people, encourages what we call in Australia the donkey vote. People say, oh, fuck it, I don't care. Yeah, really. I'll just go along and vote for anybody. It's better than getting a two hundred and fifty dollar fine. Um, oh, okay, that's a problem. But I still—it's it, probably a much smaller problem than people not voting at all and getting down to forty something oh, percent. Maybe uh,
2: I wish there was an analysis of how many uh, people uh, just do it that way versus uh, well, that said, I, "Well, I better pay more attention." I don't I know, have a, but.
1: I have we a recollection.
2: Yeah, I have a recollection that I
1: think the donkey vote, which is what they call it, is a is only around about. I think it's for some reason. I think it's about twelve percent, which is better than fifty five percent not
2: voting that we have. Yeah, I, that would be very useful to know. I, then, then let's vote for for a uh, fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, the father of modern marketing. I expect you to come out looking like um, Dumbledore from Harry Potter I expect sort of grey hair and grey beard and you know this mythical character that's 150 years old um, so how, how, did, how does it feel to be called the father of modern marketing does it make you feel old <laughs>
2: uh, you, you know I never thought of it that way uh, Bob but um and And it doesn't come up all the time when i'm introduced uh, uh, I just go on with what i'm doing sure um and i I don't mind there being a new father of of uh, digital marketing or whatever uh taking us into the next stage. I've always felt that uh Knowledge uh, should never be static and, 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 and protected. I mean, uh, in the sense that uh, one one dictum should make. Uh, I'm always for people challenging the way we understand things, and and that that will make uh, uh, society much better by 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 healthy skepticism and so on. I've been waiting for someone to find to write a marketing book that's better than mine. But uh, you haven't
1: read mine yet. <laughs> my last book. Well, one.
2: put all those things you've I, written in one book; uh, it would be very good.
1: I will send. I will send you a copy of my last book. Bearing in mind that it's five years old now, so it's it's sort of changed a bit. Sure. But I'll send it to you. Um, we're running out of time. But why did you pick economics and marketing as a career? Did you wake up one morning when you were about thirteen years old and go, "Aha!"
2: what what led you uh, into it, it you know i correct? i think i i started as a reader uh, age 8 9 10 uh reading the, not novels but uh things about society and i've always worried about the rich and the poor yep. that why should so many people good people have no money although they want to work and so on and some few people have so much and that led to my orientation and probably to, did it lead to marketing? Well, marketing was, I, so I got my PhD from uh, university, from MIT and did earlier work at the University of Chicago. And when I was being taught economics, I said that must be the subject that will make a difference in reducing poverty and, and, and sharing the wealth that's being created. And it turns out that I didn't like economics for two reasons. One was that it assumed a rational decision maker, a rational, that, yeah. that all corporations are rational and all consumers are rational. So we, that's gone now because we have what is called behavioral economics, which that's brought right. in yep. emotion and everything else. Yep. The other thing that I didn't like is, um, Um, uh, something about maximizing the shareholder wealth that was like all corporations should maximize profits and never give away any philanthropy because that should be left to the decision makers who are the shareholders who will get dividends. I didn't like that either. So I I was for a new economics, frankly. And when I saw how marketing was moving as a, could move as a field. I said that's where I'll, I'll that will be my playground because that's where the action is. So I got to understand how people make buying choices and how people make selling choices. Yeah. So, in fact, I've even said that the field of marketing is really the, should be the name rather than behavioral economics.
1: Yeah, probably should. <laughs>
2: they a, yeah. it's a total overlap. They really. didn't discover anything new in behavioral economics that marketing didn't know for hundred years. So, what
1: what's been the biggest influence on your career? A person or a an occurrence? Well,
2: I think uh, from from the person uh, from a person point of view, it was Peter Drucker. Right. I've always been an uh, uh, an admirer. I, I can read him again and again. Me too. To learn something. Yep. Yeah. And I'm going to the end of this. Uh, November uh, at the, this is the fifth time at the Drucker Forum, which meets once a year, has wonderful with people talking about things that they learned from Peter and that apply today. Right. Yeah,
1: that'll be very interesting. Philip, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, to contact Philip and find out more about his extraordinary career, go to Phil, P H I L. Kotler, K-O-T-L-E-R com. And don't forget his new book, Advancing the Common Good, out at the end of this month. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. So, Philip, thank you very, very much. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. Bob Pritchard, straight-talking, no-bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network. We're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in the entertainment and technology capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. Democracy, communism, capitalism, socialism, and fascism were the key ideologies that defined the wars of the 20th century. You'll all remember most of those. You can look back through history and point to ideology throughout every major conflict. War is fought over the different ideas that those in power in each of those ideologies hold. This is because as a society, we're tribal. We're hardwired to live in small groups that are intensely violent to other groups. In the past hundred or so years, our tribes have radically changed. The industrialization of the world has turned the tribe into a society. So instead of being small groups, we're now bigger groups. Societies are simply groups that are much larger and much more advanced than anything we've ever seen before. And people get along inside these groups because, for most part, there were shared values. As the world developed, particularly the Western world, we saw the rise of a new ideology. For the first time, some people were becoming globalists. They were the first humans to distance themselves from a local communal tribe. Instead, they regard the world as their tribe, all of humanity's their tribe. The problem, though, is that globalists are almost entirely unique to the West. It's an ideology born from the wealth and stability of generations that have enjoyed the success that we've built up over the past 200 years. Here's the kicker, though. This prosperity isn't universal. We all know this. Poverty and crime have been on the decline for decades. But that's not how each of us experience the world on a day-to-day basis. We place an emphasis on events in the present. For each and every one of us, this present can look wildly different. Not only for those outside of the Western world, but also within the Western world. Today we're seeing the ramifications of this disparity play out a clash between ideologies that's leading to internal and external conflicts. The China US trade war, for example, but this is merely a byproduct of a much deeper moral crisis. The real divide is the one we're seeing in American politics or the protests we saw in France or the riots we're now seeing in Hong Kong. People are literally fighting over ideology, a split that's resulted from our extreme partisan views, evidenced again today in the United States. The gap between the left and the right has never been wider. Why? Because most people, either side of the divide are pretty pissed off about the world. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. You know, I'm not trying to point the blame on one side or the other. It's the blame in general that's the problem. There will be no war between nations because the conflict is within nations. The problem is that economic pressures are now compounding this divide. The haves continue to hoard their riches and the have-nots grow poorer and angrier. Each of us just want our fair share. But as the last great global recession taught us, the world isn't always fair. Bankers across the world brought markets to their knees, threatened our wealth, our safety and our sovereignty, and got away with it scot-free. And where were the politicians while all this was going on? They weren't anywhere. And this made us madder. We watched the globalist dream implode, which incited the right to say enough was enough, and that inevitably irritated the left, who perceived this backlash as overstepping the mark. This has brought us to our current impasse. Now, whatever happens, it's going to be ugly. Tensions are far too high, and the wounds of the 2008 GFC are too fresh for it not to be. So the question isn't just how, it's who, or it's when. Many predict that the banks will be the next to fail, a great unbundling as they are gradually picked apart by smaller, more modern competitors. Is this the start of our economic reordering, both left and right, although they don't see eye to eye, are sick of seeing this malpractice of money? just like the people of the 1930s were sick of being downtrodden. The real bloodshed this time will be in the markets. It may start with the banks, but it is so entwined with business, others will follow. An overhaul to rid ourselves of this dominance of wealth. The most powerful force ever known on this planet is human cooperation, a force for construction and destruction. At the end of the day, all the majority of us want is a fair go. So remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring, and we all hate boring people. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard, broadcasting from Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment.
0: You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.